Welcome back to another episode of Timber Connect. We're here to help forest enthusiasts explore their curiosities among like-minded people. People who embrace innovation, strive to make a difference, and aspire to continuously improve how we manage our forests. My name is Ty, and in each episode, Julie and I will be diving into research, contentious forestry issues, and industry perspectives from the professionals you want to hear from. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Timber Connect. I'm your host, Ty Sampson. Julie's unavailable to join me today, so I'll be running solo with our guest, Steve Kazuki. Steve is the Executive Director for the Forest Enhancement Society of British Columbia, whose vision is to enhance forest resilience to wildfire and climate change for the lasting benefit of British Columbia's environment, wildlife, forest health, and communities. Thanks so much for joining me today, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me, Ty. Yeah, it's awesome to finally get you on. Whereabouts are you taking the call from today? From my home in Williams Lake. I born in Williams Lake, live here, but I work in Kamloops at our FESBC office there. Awesome. Yeah, we have something in common already. I was also born in Williams Lake. So, Steve, you've got such a rich and extensive history in the forestry sector. I feel like it would honestly just take me hours to cover it all. But to start out, maybe you could give our audience the Cliff Notes version of how you got to where you are in your career today. Well, I started out uh, as a laborer working in a sawmill in a small community north of Prince George called Bear Lake. It was really good grounding to learn and understand how lumber is made. I got my forest technologist diploma from the College of New Caledonia in Prince George, a degree in forest management from UBC. I've worked for consultants a little bit when I was in my younger years. I worked for uh, a large integrated forest company called Weldwood uh, for a number of years, Williams Lake, and as well as Pennell Division. I joined the Council of Forest Industries as, a, as an advocate for the forest industry uh, for a number of years based out of Prince George. I've worked for a pulp company, Paper Excellence, in Mackenzie, British Columbia. A lot of people might have done a tour of duty there. Uh, about 11 years ago, I joined the BC government, uh, the Ministry of Forests, on the BC timber sales side of things here in Williams Lake. So it was great. I was able to get back home. I uh, did a few years as the director of timber pricing. So all things stumpage, scaling, waste, cruising for the provincial government out of uh, the Victoria office. And now I'm with the Forest Enhancement Society, uh, the best job I've ever had. And so, so happy to be here to be able to, to do, you know, help people do the good work that they do in our forests. I love that. From here on out, we will acronym it as the FESBC because saying the Forest Enhancement Society of British Columbia might get a little monotonous, but I super resonate with everything they stand for and a lot of the projects they fund. It's a great organization. I'm curious, what what triggered the development of the FES those five or six or seven years ago that, that it began? Like, what was it that the government was looking at that said, you know what, we need to put together a entity that is going to cover this type of funding? Was there a specific incident? Well, if there was one incident, I, I guess I would point to the mountain pine beetle epidemic. Coming to the end of the salvage of the dead pine, it hadn't all been salvaged. and dead pine and and areas that are what forestry people in BC call NSR, not sufficiently restocked, um, there was no new forest coming up. And so that was a big concern that what would happen with all of those 
those areas that hadn't been harvested because if they're harvested, then the company that does the logging is legally obligated to reforest it. But if it never does get harvested, then it falls to the Crown. And the Crown just felt, well, we should set up a separate organization to address that issue, uh, along with a number of other ones. And so in the day, it was uh, Minister Steve Thompson and uh, Deputy Minister Tim Sheldon, who were the brainchilds and uh, the lead mechanic, I think, was a fellow named Jason Fisher, who was fairly well known in, in the forest sector. Uh, those three really led the charge to create the Forest Enhancement Society. In that year, it, it happened that they had some unspent money in the wildfire uh, fighting budget. And so that first year, they transferred $85 million to FES. And then in the following year, uh, another $150 million. And we've gotten some more money since then. But that was how we got started. Very cool. I had a hunch that you were going to say that it might have been on the tail end of the, the mountain pine beetle, which is clearly one of the most devastating natural disturbances that we've had in the province. I see a lot on the promotional material that FES puts out. You talk a lot about transformative projects that create resiliency in our forest. In my experience, when I was tree planting up north, even kind of in the middle of the mountain pine beetle epidemic, we were still planting very large volumes of pine. And I always kind of question, like, well, you know, we're not really adding structure into our forest. Is, is this really more resilient? So I'd be curious to hear from you, from your professional perspective, like, what is a resilient forest? Well, a resilient forest is one that would have the same characteristics as what uh, the forest would be under natural conditions. And so when I talk about resiliency and creating more natural forests, it's often in the context of the drier interior areas of BC, where fire is naturally a frequent visitor. You know, in some areas, the, the periodicity or the frequency of, of light fires is even as low as eight years. Um, Dr. Lori Daniels from UBC is doing a bunch of work, um, dendrochronology work, whatever the case may be. And every forester knows that it varies with climate and things like that. But what happened is a few things that, that excluded fire as a naturally occurring agent in these uh, functioning ecosystems. One is we started building roads and railroads, converting areas to agriculture. So you have green crops where fire might go up to the edge, but it doesn't get to the other side of the field or the other side of the train tracks. And, and then we also started very vigorously putting fires out. So it's not that we had fewer fires, but the fires that we did have didn't spread very far and they didn't burn very long. And so interrupting that natural flow of fire across time and space had pretty dire ecological consequences. And as a professional forester myself, myself, and I know some others, We've had a real epiphany in the last five years, and it hits like a ton of bricks, that we have been trying to work against nature for all this time. And now we have forests. Like where I live around Williams Lake, there's a, I grew up thinking it's a beautiful sea of continuous carpet of mature Douglas fir trees. But I dug up some photos, and, and I could see from the Borland Creek Ranch, which is pretty much right in the center of town, looking up the valley on the hillsides. Well, 100 years ago, you know, 
maybe 50% or more of those hillsides were just rangeland, grassland, not covered in forest, but we've excluded fires. And now those areas have grown in. They have ingrowth or encroaching of trees and forests. And where there were trees before, now there's more trees and they're growing thicker and the branches are all intertwined. You know, the elders in the, some of the local communities say that, you know, back when their grandparents were children, they would hear stories about riding a horse 50 kilometers to the next community. Well, there's no way you could ride a horse through those thick overgrown forests. And so listening to those voices and better understanding how the ecology should be functioning over larger timescapes helps us to realize that, well, we need to kind of help these forests get back to their natural state. So they're more semi-open. Songbirds can go through. There's so many examples, Ty. Uh, near Summerland, the uh, Okanagan Nation Alliance and the Penticton Indian Band, we did a project with them. And they were talking about how the bighorn sheep, they like to be able to have open views to see their prey from a distance. And if they can't, then they start to have anxiety. And it starts to impact the health and the fertility and, and then all the other, you know, components of the ecosystem also suffer in ways too. And, and so we need to thin those forests out, reduce the fuel loading, protect the communities. And then once they have a lower level of fuel loading, we can then reintroduce what they call cultural burning or prescribed burning by Indigenous people. A lot of bands in the drier interior have traditional positions within the community called a fire keeper and they know when to burn. And I heard this amazing story from Dr. Paul Hesper, who is probably the preeminent researcher on fire and dry interior, like uh, Western Washington and Oregon and Idaho. And, and he came to BC and he told a story about how talking with the elders and the tribes down there in the U S and they were doing this indicator thing and saying, well, okay, smoke, smoke is bad. And the elders said, well, hold on. We actually used to light it up in the late summer so that the smoke would cover the valley and block the sun, and that would help the salmon with cooler water temperatures. And Paul, Dr. Paul Hesper said, wow, never in a million years would I have connected those two dots. <laughs> so transformation, um, that's just ecologically on the, you know, in the forest, trying to create resiliency. When those forests are healthier and they have more you know, all the, there's the habitat benefits for wildlife. But also as the climate changes, when the trees are healthier, they're more resilient to further climate change. And they can also be better prepared to fight off disease and insects if they're, they're healthier. And so when we talk about resiliency, that, that's a big part of it. Um, it also helps the communities to be resilient, to be better protected from wildfire and the wildlife habitat, the wildlife to be more resilient because they're happier and healthier. The bigger topic of transformation is really amazing. You know, you got the ecological component, but we also have a sector transformation that's underway. You know, we've had 20 years ago, we had a sawmill sector that was this big, and we had a pulp mill sector that was just the right size, and all the waste fiber from the sawmill would be used by the pulp sector. Well, now, we have more pellet plants and we have cogen plants producing electricity. And that's exacerbated by sawmill production coming down. There's, there's sawmills that have been closing down. And that means there's a, a shortage of residual fiber and to make that green energy. 
And so if we want to continue to expand the bioenergy sector using biomass from the forest in British Columbia, we need to find a way to get more of that wood waste that's being left in the forest and burned in slash piles into the hands of the bioenergy sector. So we've done a whole bunch of things and, and we've learned a whole bunch of things. Contractors have learned a bunch of things. When you get operators that are getting skills, we're, we know what equipment, uh, how to time the operation after the, the harvesting, how to harmonize it and integrate it and coordinate it better right through to the planning stage. And to have the equipment and labor capacity to do that now that we have it and we built it up, we can keep that momentum going. And so that's resulting in a permanent transformation where we've normalized a higher util- higher degree of utilization of what used to be waste wood. And when we get up to that higher level of volume that we're, we're processing, it drives down the unit costs just because of economies of scale and because we figured out, you know, get the know-how, operational know-how to to make it done. And so when you drive the cost down, that results in a permanent shift, permanent transformation to a bigger bioeconomy in British Columbia. We also see transformation um, with indigenous peoples who in, in some cases they're, you know, they're they've developed or created companies just to access fast funding. And they're getting involved in the bioeconomy and they're leading projects sometimes for the first time. And that's transformational because rather than being a service provider, like a contractor, you know, at the whim of some other project manager, they are now the the manager and they're making decisions when, where, and how those projects should happen. And not only that, they're injecting their indigenous perspective into these projects. Like one amazing example was uh, Williams Lake Community Forest. They wanted to thin out some pine from the 1970s harvesting needed to be thinned and fertilized. And good, because you do that, you know, as foresters, we grow more wood and some of it, we're just kind of programmed that way to to like to increase our yield. But the Williams Lake First Nation, they were leading the project and they said, well, actually, another main objective is to open up the forest, let more sunlight and moisture hit the ground, and that's going to increase berry production for our people. And so, wow, that was a real eye-opener to, to appreciate just how important that was. And, and for me, you know, as a forester, it helped really drove home the idea that, you know, lots of times we can have multiple objectives and they can be complementary and synergistic. They don't have to be either or. It's often we can have both, just like when we do thinnings around communities to reduce the biomass and the, and the fire risk. Well, yeah, we achieved that objective, but we're also improving wildlife habitat for mule deer or sheep or songbirds. We're also creating opportunities like the city of Quinell did when they did their project. They made trails. Now people are walking their dogs and riding their bikes on those forested areas that have been treated. And people actually enjoy it because it's kind of semi-shaded, semi-open. And we can use the waste wood to make bioenergy. And so these communities are starting to feel like, well, yeah, now they're able to do their part to the the global contribution to mitigating climate change. So all of these things are transformational. We're getting more uh, grassroots social license from local residents for these kinds of projects. We're getting more indigenous participation in the forest economy. We're creating more resilient forests. We're accelerating the growth of the bioeconomy. Yeah, what's not to like?
Totally. Wow. There's so much I want to touch on with that. That was such an insightful answer in so many ways. Hey, Timber Connect job seekers. We hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a minute and let you know about some awesome new opportunities with Stillwater Consulting in Prince George, Kamloops, and Nanaimo, British Columbia. Stillwater is currently accepting applications from exceptional individuals to join their team as a natural resource program coordinator. If you have experience in outdoor education, forestry, natural sciences, or program coordination, then Stillwater Consulting wants to hear from you. Check out the posting at jobs.timberconnect.ca and apply today. One of the things that I recognize you, you know, kind of beaming up when you talk about, I mean, you can't see his face on the, the podcast, but he's smiling every time he talks about it, is the work that you've done with Indigenous Nations and First Nations in these local communities. And I'm just curious, like, what has that experience been like for you professionally and personally to be so involved in these innovative projects that are allowing Indigenous Nations to have kind of economic autonomy and control of the forest that surrounds them? A couple of examples. One is, I guess, on the professional innovation side, you know, with a, a Silcotine organization, Chilcotin, west of Williams Lake. And, you know, in other areas of the province, we have different kinds of projects. But this particular project was uh, using drones. And I think most people have seen drones flying around. But these were big drones, like with 1.3 meter wingspans. And they were flying around in swarms. And they had like a 56 pound payload and they were dropping seeds and direct seeding uh, people that are close to forestry probably know it hasn't really been very successful in the past you know and one of the big reasons is you just get predation and you have to spread so much seed and seed is a valuable resource you, you don't want to waste it and it's hard to control density well what the Silco team did was uh, they encased the seeds, two seeds in a pod, and they're like wafers. Well, first of all, what they do is they distrench the whole block, make these trenches to make, you know, for the seeds to germinate. And then they would fly it with a drone and get close LIDAR, high resolution LIDAR coverage of every trench and every tree and almost every branch and stump in, on that block. I mean, it's amazing just the resolution. So it's totally mapped out. And then they program this swarm of drones to go and drop these seed pods in the center of the trench at a prescribed distance wow. while avoiding obstacles. And these, these pods are, you know, have animal repellent, so they don't get the, uh, the predation or we hope they won't, they won't. We saw some germination success with that and uh, with the controlled density. And we're going to have to fine tune it just like any other new forestry innovation you know, different sites at different densities and different site prep and, and all this kind of stuff. But it was so exciting that it was being led by an indigenous company who just wants to be more involved. And they weren't afraid of using brand new technology. And it was quite refreshing. One of FES's trademarks, we're not afraid to take calculated risks if we think that there's going to be a big payoff. If we're successful, we, we're a long ways from knowing if this is going to be a proven technology. But if we are successful, it, we could reduce the cost of reforestation by half. Wow. And that's, that's big, really big. Um, and it could also be safer. You're not going to get uh, injuries to tree planters. Yeah, no kidding. 
And so that's a, an example of innovation by a First Nation. You know, they're a new entrant into the forest economy. And maybe that's the reason they're not afraid to, to try something new. And we were happy to, to enable that with our funding. Another example, um, I won't name names, but there was a chief who said, you know, thank you, Fess, for doing this project and, and giving the funding because it's, it's helped provide employment you know, for people and communities where unemployment can be very high chronically. But he said, you know, it's more than just a paycheck. There's reduced crime, there's reduced substance abuse, there's less domestic violence, and maybe even the children are doing better in school. And so he asked a question for me personally, <laughs> that was just amazing. Like when I went to school, forestry school, they never taught us just how much of a social impact benefit that we could have in forestry and boy that just lit up my heart and if you could see me now you'd probably see me smiling so humbling to hear that i had a incredible conversation with the elected chief counselor of heisla nation crystal smith about a month ago and it's not necessarily forestry related but it's energy related and she spoke a lot about the pipeline the lng pipeline that went through their territory and how much it has significantly improved the roughly 1900 members of their nation's lives like they have the most people they've ever had pursuing post-secondary education they have the their members going out and getting their own mortgages um, and she's just beaming with pride realizing that resource development and indigenous nations don't have to be two separate sides of the fence and once they do have that seat at the table which is really you know a lot of only what they're looking for they just want to have a say, a vote, or be a part of the conversation. And it's so rewarding to to see that. I know in my experience, anytime I've worked with the chief or I've got to go out with the archaeologists and and walk their land, I am a sponge. You know, their knowledge is so deep and so vast. And I just want to absorb all of it because it's invaluable. And they are the keepers of that knowledge. It's their right to pass that on and share it. So I feel so honored that, you know, I'm someone who can be a recipient of that that knowledge and information. Yeah. And, you know, and I reflect on FES's success with doing projects with First Nations. So, you know, out of the $238 million that we uh, had allocated, uh, about 30% of it had been to First Nations-led projects. Wow. And it wasn't by design. We had no target at all. It's mm -hmm. not an Indigenous program, but it, it kind of made sense to me. They're They're so interested in taking part in, in helping to manage the forest, that they step forward. They're, they're motivated. Uh, they've lived on the land for thousands of years and, and expect to for to continue to do that. Yeah, and seeing those social benefits uh, is just amazing. I think part of the, the success for FES, why we've had so many successes with Indigenous people, is that we're kind of a, an objective third party, very neutral when it comes to First Nations relations. If they want to do a good project, well, we want to do good projects, so let's do good projects together. And that's, that's all that's required. Whereas if they're dealing with government or with an industry partner, even in a joint venture, there can be some tension because there's a quid pro quo. Okay, well, if we do this, then you do that for us. And with FAST, there's no strings attached. Just do the project. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sure makes it a lot easier for them to, to do those projects with us. I'm not saying that it's not important they work with government, because they do, 
there's rights and title and legal issues and permitting and consultation. That's the, the government's obligation. Having a third party like FAST, we, we don't have to deal with all those other obstacles. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to make money. Unlike a company on a joint venture, you know, there's always going to be pressure to make profit, which fair enough. I mean, they have to and they should. But uh, we don't have that issue with FAST projects. So it just it's so much easier. And, and I think that's why we've had so much success. No kidding. Yeah, it takes away that pressure. So let's extend on that success that FAST has had. I was reading your accomplishment report. And for anyone that's listening today, that will be linked in the description uh, of this episode. And it's really quite impressive. Uh, just for example, as of March 2022, Forest Enhancement Society of BC has supported over 263 projects valued at $238 million and has generated over $363 million in economic activity in partnership with the province of BC and the government of Canada. So these are some huge numbers. And I was really curious to hear from you. What does this economic activity look like? Like what type of projects are you funding? Um, and, and how is that looking going into the future? Okay, well, it's a little bit backwards looking on the 238 that we've allocated in the past. We, we do have new money and we're also doing new projects going forward. But for that portfolio, 150 out of the 238, so over 60%, was to greenhouse gas beneficial projects. And the lion's share of that probably went to tree planting. So we planted, I think, about 66 million trees in the aftermath of the the fires in 17 and 18 to help accelerate the ecological recovery of those devastated areas. In our peak year, we planted 30 million. That initial, I guess, crisis has has passed. And and now the Ministry of Forests, they have a wonderful in-house team who are experts in reforestation. And and so they don't really need us uh, for capacity. And, and they're, they're well positioned to continue to do that going forward. Probably our second biggest type of project was fiber utilization. And the fiber that we've utilized or helped utilize, it, it's kind of complicated, but we, what we do is we make it cost neutral for the seller. So we often try to put the funding in the hands of the seller of the fiber. You know, it might be a First Nation, might be a community forest or some other party who then sells it to a pulp mill or a pellet plant, or to a cogen facility like, you know, Merritt or Fort St. James, or there's a whole bunch all around the province to make electricity from directly from that biomass. A very small amount to post and rail. The ratio of funding, and I'll just use some round numbers here just to illustrate, although they're probably not too far from, from the actual numbers. You know, if a pulp log is worth $60 in the marketplace, $60 a cubic meter on a roundwood basis delivered to the facility, but there's lots of pulp logs that are out farther out in the forest beyond outside of the economic radius, that might be $80. So what FEST would do is we would pay the $20 differential to make it available at the market at the market price. You know, there's been a whole bunch of, accolades and, and and really good comments and reception from the industry on that, that this fiber was available that was previously economically out of reach. But I think what's more, more important than that, the good wishes is the fact that there hasn't been a whole lot of complaints. As you can imagine, anytime government entity gives out money to the private sector companies, 
very difficult to do that without having their neighbor complain, another company, because you could really quite easily disrupt the economic balance in that market shed. And we've been very successful. Just to head on, address the, the potential question. Yeah, we've been reviewed by the U.S. Department of Commerce. Wow. More than once. And we've come out clean every time. There is no subsidy to the, uh, to the lumber sector in British Columbia or even the secondaries because they're, they're not getting a monetary gain. They're still buying the fiber at the full market price. What we're doing is we're helping to cover some of the cost for the sellers of that fiber. So that's been very successful. Um, a lot of apprehension before we did it. That's why I'm emphasizing this point is because, you know, nobody thought it could be done, but we, we figured a, out a way to, to get it done. Mm-hmm. $57 million went to projects in 120 communities to help reduce their, their risk to wildfire. We were influential, you know, some communities weren't really quite ready. So we, we helped them understand, well, first they need to do something like a community wildfire protection plan where they identify all the values that they want to protect, whether it be the school, commercial buildings, residences, communication towers, water supply. You know, you got to make sure you have electricity because otherwise you can't function in a crisis without electricity. You got to have safe uh, access and egress from the community for the, the emergency responders and, and any evacuees. And so, they go, oh, yeah, okay, let's do that. And then we tell them they have to identify all the risks. So those are forests that have high fuel loadings. And then, then you can go into prescription. Okay, well, how much do you need to reduce the fuel density and where and how and what all, are, all the other values you want to achieve when you're doing these treatments? And so that's been great. We've had regional districts, uh, First Nation communities, municipalities, woodlots, community forests. In some cases, it's consultants. Because if you're a community and you just have a, a small town or a village and you have a mayor and some counselors that are an almost volunteer, they don't have forest management expertise in-house. Not only that, they don't want to take on a project because there's legal and, and financial liability that they're exposing their constituents to. So they can just say to a, a willing consulting firm, say, hey, the consulting firm can act on our behalf, and that's who takes the financial risk and the, manage the, the legal obligations of that project. So that model has worked very well, and that's one of the you know the hallmarks of FAST is that we have all kinds of flexibility to who the recipient is, and we're not too hung up on a formal relationship. I and mean, we've got to make sure the the agreements are there, but we're we're very flexible in in getting these projects delivered. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it seems almost every two weeks I see a new headline coming out about an awesome new wildfire risk reduction project that's coming out from funding from FES. I mean, we have Logan Lake, we had Caslow. I remember speaking with Kyle Broom from Cabin and they had an awesome one that took place in Vernon, all with the funding that comes from FESBC. So, you know, it's, it's so great to see the impact that it's having on industry and communities, even if some people don't know that that's actually what's going on in their forest. Yeah, yeah, and we're not the only funder out there on wildfire risk reduction. There's, uh, you know, the government has a CRI program, the UBCM has a program, and and we work very closely with them, and we coordinate uh, through a fire smart committee to make sure that that's all kind of 
seamless to to the recipients so that they don't have to figure out the jurisdictional stuff. We, we try to make it easy for them and we work together because we all have the same goal. We're just trying to help protect British Columbians and, and enhance our forests. So why wouldn't we work together? You know, and, and another mandate and, and purpose that FES has is wildlife habitat enhancement. I spoke a little bit about it, how we achieve some of those through the projects that we do and, and why not? Mm-hmm. It makes sense. You can you can enhance habitat for wildlife while at the same time doing your main project. It's, it's not very hard. But we do do some direct projects that are just where the primary focus is enhancing wildlife. Early on, we looked around and we saw the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation. When you buy a hunting license or a fishing license or guiders and, and, and outfitters, there's a surcharge, conservation surcharge. Some people might be aware of that, but you might not know that that surcharge goes to the, the Trust Foundation, and then they go and do habitat projects. Well, we saw that they've been doing this kind of work for almost 40 years. They had really expert biologists on staff. They uh, have a really good funding administration and good governance and, and financial management expertise. So we thought, well, why would we do something that somebody is already doing very well? So we just took some of our funding and we co-funded projects through them and used their solicitation projects. So we're very proud of that work. And there'll be some some uh, media information coming out on that in the next uh, month or two. Actually, just on that note, say I'm listening to this podcast today and I've never heard of FES and I wanted to learn more about um, the organization and what they do. Where can I access some of this information? Well, just Google F-E-S-B-C and uh, you'll find gobs of information, including our own website, which we try to keep up to date. If nothing else, uh, one thing that's really cool is uh, an interactive map of British Columbia showing where each and every one of our projects are. You can look in your own backyard, see what's going on and get some details around those projects. So that's just fun to do if you're curious, but it's also very useful for local government leaders or others to browse around and say, oh, well, there's a project and get inspiration. Oh, they did it. So why couldn't we do it in our backyard type of thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's great. Plus, uh, you know, there's all the other information that you might want about FAST. Some of it's boring with governance, but I mean, it's it's necessary. Everybody has to have that, uh, which we do. And I mentioned it earlier on. We you know, on our board of directors, we currently have um, a former chief forester for the province of BC, Jim Snetzinger, you know, a very prominent industry leader named Wayne Clogg. He retired as the vice president of West Fraser, got some amazing financial acumen from Brian Banfield. He's a senior executive vice president for Island, uh, Island Timberlands, I think it was, and Acadia Forest Products. And he just knows investments and uh, how to how to transparently manage money and, and helps us so much in that regard. We have Sarah Fraser from the Ministry of Forest and ADM there. In the past, we've had Keith Atkinson from the First Nations Forestry Council, who's been super helpful, or, or Chief Derek Orr. And, and Dave Peterson, you know, former president of the Caribou Lumber Manufacturers and currently an ADM for Emergency Management BC and done so many other things work for lignums and, and others. And so with a first-class board like that, it, it's hard not to be successful. Totally. I was going to say that sounds like the A-team right there. <laughs> I'd say one of the most interesting things that we've discussed today that 
I was unaware of is that, you know, you guys picking up that extra little cost for the seller on the bioeconomy is from the people I've talked to clearly the, the biggest barrier for that becoming successful is the the cost and the upfront investment to actually get in there and salvage that material and make something of it. So I find that really exciting and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing a bit more research and following along with that as it goes. Yeah, well, the, the important thing to understand there is that uh, start on the value side. There's a hierarchy of value. So, you know, of course, house logs and high quality logs, you can make plywood or export it to Japan, number one quality. Those are the highest value. And then you get into the commodity lumber, two by fours for, you know, stick frame houses and whatnot. But below that, below the solid wood, you get the next highest value is pulp. And I'll just use some rough numbers just to illustrate the scale. But historically, pulp chips, so they're bark-free, homogenous size, they're $100 a ton. Whereas pellet stock is about 50 bucks a ton. And hog fuel that you use to make electricity, you know, might be 20 bucks or, or, or less. We have projects where innovative, creative people, so they're non-standard forestry people. They're not the people that have been doing it for 30 or 100 years. They're new entrants. And so they go, well, let's go in, let's take all the pulp logs that we can and maximize that value. You know, and there might be some saw logs that are mistakenly in that pile. We'll try to get those out and get the value out of that as well. And then whatever's left over, we'll, we'll grind it up mm. for pellets. And if the pellet folks can't use it, then we'll send it to a cogen facility to make electricity. We're trying to extract as much value. You know, we're not just making electricity because we can. We're the project partners. Everybody is looking to maximize the value. So I would encourage you to start on that side. On the cost side, as I said, the key is to build up your workforce, build up your equipment fleet, um, make sure you understand what configuration works where and under what kind of constraints in the wintertime versus summer, big difference. Do you haul it out in log form or do you grind it out in the bush? Mm -hmm. Big difference and there's pros and cons. Sometimes it works. Not all of our projects are successful. Uh, I don't want, I want to make sure people understand. You know, like a baling project, baling biomass. Well, yeah, interesting idea, novel. We tried it out. I concluded it wasn't really too practical. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, they don't always work out. But we, but we are learning. And more importantly, the whole sector is learning. And as you get build up that critical mass of know-how and cost efficiencies through economies of scale, and you just start to make it more normal, then it becomes more cost effective. What used to be uneconomic is now becoming economic. So then fast, we can go to the next band out and, and start to fund that. You know, I do the rough math. We harvest roughly 60 million cubic meters a year in BC off of crown land. And a rough rule of thumb, you know, maybe 10, maybe 15% of that is waste left in the bush. Fast, we've been funding about a million meters a year for the last three years running in each of the last three years. There may be 6 million cubic meters available, and we're just kind of getting the low-hanging fruit. There's still, still more we could go. If we want to keep the pellet plants running, if we want to keep the pulp mills running that we have, even in the face of sawmill closures, we can do it. We just have to be in, innovative and really smart 
and clever and how we do it, but but I believe we are doing it and we've made a lot of headway and, and I believe we can go a little bit further. So exciting. Well, especially with the team you've put together, it sounds like, yeah, with that much expertise and that, that much specialization and understanding of the markets and the supply chain and industry, and then your numbers just speak for themselves too, right? Like it's a, a very successful venture. Yeah, I'm really excited to follow along with that and see the progress as we go. Yeah, well, thanks for, you know, we do have a great team on staff. We have a great board of directors, but the real key to success and, and you know, if we're going to end, I'd like to end on this is that FAST adopted what we call a proponent-driven funding model. What that means is that we don't decide in Victoria or in Kamloops what projects are going to happen where and when. We rely on local experts in, in local communities to come forward and tell us what they think uh, can be done and should be done in their areas because they know best. And then they lead those projects and they engage with the local citizens and the, the contracting community. And and I, I talked about the, the greenhouse component of our program. Well, those people are are the real heroes, climate change heroes. They're, they're wearing hard hats. I've said this before. They wear hard hats and high-vis vests, and they're actually making a real meaningful contribution to mitigating climate change um, by removing literally tons and tons, millions of tons of carbon, 5.1 million tons of carbon through FAST projects, Mm -hmm. uh, which is equivalent to taking a million cars off the road for a year. They they are the real heroes. They they make it happen. They know what to do, when to do it, how to do it. They're they're the innovators. So FAST staff and the board, we're, we're enablers. And while we're proud of the work we do, we don't want to take credit. It's the, the working women and men in British Columbia and uh, forestry professionals who are making this a success. I love to hear that. And really, just as you touched on, like that, that's what's really going to build back that social license is giving the power back to the people who live there, who, you know, walk in those trails, who go out for their morning runs, who sit on their deck and overlook their view. Like it's, it's so important that they have an understanding and a say in what happens in those regions because they're there day in, day out. They, they feel that impact the most. So if I was wearing a hat, I would take it off to all those people that you, you just talked about because it's the backbone of the forest industry right now. And I'm just really proud to be a part of the generation that this is all beginning to occur. And I mean, it has been for the past little bit, but really it's starting to gain footing and it's shown in the success of organizations like the Forest Enhancement Society of British Columbia and the community forests all around our provinces. So on behalf of me and the audience, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your schedule today to enlighten us and share this information with us. Super valuable. And I hope everyone got as much from this conversation today as I did. Well, thank you, Ty. It's been a real pleasure to to share uh, a little bit about FES with with folks, and people are welcome to call me or email me if they they're curious and would like to follow up, or even better if they have ideas for really good projects. Amazing! And one one last time, you can access all of that information that Steve has shared with us today. They put out accomplished reports. They do a lot of promotional material. They have a newsletter. And all that can be accessed at www.fesbc.ca. Thanks again so much, everybody. And we'll catch you again next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Timber Connect. 
If you'd like to hear more, you can search for us on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at TimberConnect or visit our website at TimberConnect.ca. That's all for this episode. We'll catch you again next time.